Welcome back to From My Mom's Basement, the podcast that is recorded directly from my mom's basement. I'm your host, David Chamberlain, and you're listening to episode 15 of the podcast entitled Bald Spot with Freckles. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoy. It was a two-hour layover in Chicago, and then another hour of waiting at LAX, followed by a 30-minute drive to where I am now, a second-rate motel with free Wi-Fi advertised on its sign. The Wi-Fi itself is a kind of reflection of the motel, dodgy, shoddy, and really almost entirely useless. My motel room is the size of my mudroom back at home, or at what used to be my home. We'll see what the lawyers are able to yank out from under me. The wallpaper is peeling in the corners of the room, folding back from the ceiling like the long leaves of a palm tree. There is a small, wooden table near the television where sticky remains of some past substance glisten under the lamplight. The television is a flat screen, but it's about the size of a microwave, and of some unknown, foreign make. It buzzes when it turns on. The bathroom is an entirely different story. When I walk inside, I feel I have been transported to the back of a Greyhound bus station or a truck stop off I-95. The mirror above the sink is cracked and graffitied with profanities and graphic illustrations of erotic behaviors. There are long, green streaks of mold running from beneath the faucet to the drain, which is inundated with globs of hair and other substances I would rather not describe. The toilet, which is pink, and filled with murky swamp water, sits merely inches above the ground. A smell emanates from the mouth of this toilet bowl, something heinous and sour that burns my nostrils and causes me to gag. The floor of the shower is coated in a thin layer of grime, dark and granular. There are the vague outlines of handprints on the tiles surrounding the shower, old memories of past shower users now enshrined by dirt and scum and mold. I stay out of the bathroom. I will only be here for a night. I sit on the very edge of my possibly parasite-infested bed and stare at the suitcases on the floor in front of me. Two massive blue rectangles with the name Tommy Hilfiger printed across them. My entire life sits in those suitcases. Everything that I considered precious made its way into those bags. But a lot of it is useless stuff kitchenware, clothes, cologne. I guess I just grabbed what I could. I'll get the rest later, hopefully. I should have grabbed photos. It'll be difficult to get anything else right now. They're going to make everything difficult. I won't be able to get anything else without a fight. I should have gotten more photos and my dad's watch. I grab the television remote, whose rubber buttons are slippery with some kind of grease, and turn on the flat screen. It buzzes to life, and its unrestrained LED light burns into my eyes. The TV is tuned to CNN. Wolf Blitzer is saying something, but the speakers are unrefined and muffled, and his voice sounds distant and faint, like I'm submerged underwater, and he's yelling something to me from the shoreline. Sorry, Wolf, I can't hear you, but I'm sure what you're saying is very important. I flip through the channels. The TV makes a weird squeaky noise each time I land on a new station, a kind of painful yelp, almost. Finally, when I find something good to watch, the mini-fridge kicks on, droning loudly over top the already muffled television audio, making the whole endeavor pretty much pointless. I shut the TV off and look out the window. 
Through the thin drapery and dusty windowpane, I can see the fun outlines of a few palm trees, tall and healthy. We don't get palm trees back where I'm from, back where my family lives. I like palm trees. They're happy plants. The sky is gray and overcast, but it's not sad or dreary. It's got a breath of spring in it, a hint of warmer months to come. California clouds are different from northeastern ones. They're soft and comforting, sedating, like a warm blanket. I hope California treats me well. I decide to leave my room and have a walk outside before it gets dark. I want to waltz around in the coolish warmth of Southern California. I leave my suit coat on the bed and go out in my tie and shirt sleeves. The sky is darkening. In a few moments, street lamps and neon signs will start to flicker on, but the air feels welcoming. There is a subtle breeze that has some whisper of the ocean inside of it, and as I walk down the concrete steps of the motel towards the pool, I swear I can hear the call of seagulls. As I meander aimlessly down the chipped and cracked sidewalk, my hands in my pockets, I see a couple guys are talking near the entrance to the pool. One of their heads is shaved, but the hint of fiery red hair, like a five o'clock shadow, is beginning to bloom just above his ears. The other has long, stringy blonde hair that hangs in greasy strands just past his shoulders. I look down at my Armani loafers and feel very out of place. The two men notice me as I come clomping in their direction. My loafers echo as they clap against the concrete. The bald-headed man nudges his friend, and they start talking in hushed voices. Their eyes dart from the pool, to me, and back to the pool again. There is tension in their faces, in their mutterings. I keep my eyes fixed on the motel office beyond them, pretending I don't notice them or their peculiar behavior. But as I walk past them, my worst fears are realized. The bald-headed man calls out to me, reaching out his hand in my direction and kind of waving to get my attention. Hello, I say, without slowing my pace. I nod and continue forward. Psst, the bald-headed man says, whispering. Come here, man. Come here. I stop walking and turn to face the two men, really acknowledging their existence for the first time. The long-haired man stares at me with dark eyes. They're void of life, deep and empty like a shark's. The bald-headed man smiles at me. His teeth are like a checkerboard, alternating in a variety of colors and materials, everything from gold to silver to a single diamond-encrusted tooth. What is it, gentlemen? I ask, trying to be polite but stern. I've only been in this part of the country for an hour, and I already feel targeted. I feel like a victim. I can feel my palms starting to sweat. I feel my heart starting to race. My neck starts to feel warm and tingly, and I know I must be blushing. And I know these men must see it and recognize it as weakness. There are certain cues nature won't let you hide, doesn't want you to hide. Come here and look at this, the bald-headed man whispers again. We want your opinion on something. I don't move. What is it? I ask, trying to hide my fear behind disinterest and impatience. Just come take a look at this. The long-haired man says, We're not gonna mug you or anything, dude. Shit, you're chumpy, man. I casually look around, making sure there are no hidden assailants ready to spring a trap, and then walk towards them and the entrance to the pool. My hands are clenched within my pockets. The two men are looking through the rusty, metal bars of the fence surrounding the pool and are pointing at something. The tones they use are hushed and reverent, almost as if they are at a funeral or inside a chapel. 
I inch up beside them and peer through the bars, trying to find what has caught their attention. What is it? I ask. What are you guys so worked up about? The bald-headed man points to the center of the pool, but I can't really make out anything. The pool is kidney-shaped and filled with murky green water, similar to what could be found in my bathroom toilet bowl. There is a nice layer of green algae growing on top of the pool water. It looks like that film of slime you see alligators hiding under in swamps and bayous. The pool deck is empty. There are no patrons, chairs, tables, or umbrellas. On the barren concrete surrounding the pool are rust stains from metal furniture. Like the handprints in my shower, these are fossilized outlines etched into the concrete. Ghosts, speaking of a time when people could use this pool, could lounge by it, could enjoy the hot and happy weather. No one has used this pool in a very, very long time. The pool lights are off, and in the cool Californian twilight, it's hard to see anything in much detail without them. I, I don't see what you're pointing to, I say, somewhat annoyed. What is it? We're not sure, says the bald-headed man, still using a quiet tone. That's why we're asking you. Just follow my finger. Look right where I'm pointing. The bald-headed man wiggles his hand through the bars of the fence and points straight at the center of the pool. I do as he says, following the imaginary line his index finger creates, looking straight down his finger like a marksman down the end of his rifle. Oh, oh, I say. I, I do see something. Yeah, I... I do see something. Well, the long-haired man says, What do you think it is, dude? We have our guesses. It's not good, man. I don't say anything. I'm not entirely sure what it is exactly. There, in the center of the pool, is a kind of black blob subtly bobbing in the water. Based on its shape, I can tell that most of the unidentified object is submerged underwater, while only a small fraction of it floats above the surface. I stare at it for some time. There's something wrong about it. Something inherent to its shape and form that make it disquieting, unpleasant to look at. I start to understand why these men have been using hushed tones. What? What the hell is that? I ask, now mimicking their quiet, deferent tone. What? What is that thing? We don't know, the bald-headed man says. That's why we called you over here, man. We all stare in silence at the black thing in the pool. The world around us slowly gets darker. The shape is becoming harder to make out. Well, open the gate, I say. Let's, let's go check it out. The bald-headed man pulls on the iron gate to the pool. It wiggles and makes a melodic clanging sound, but doesn't budge. It's locked, says the bald-headed man. Don't you think we would have already tried that? Shit, man. I shrug. Have you guys told the manager about this? I ask. The long-haired man shakes his head. No, uh-uh, says the bald-headed man. Well, I say, we better go talk to him. The three of us slowly back away from the pool's fence, keeping our eyes on the pool as though it is a predator who might pounce, and then suddenly turn and charge down the sidewalk to the motel office. As the three of us run to the office, me and my Brooks Brothers pinstripes, and these boys in their street attire, I think that we must look like one hell of a trio. We burst into the fluorescent lighting of the motel office out of breath, our faces flushed. The motel manager hardly notices us, hardly moves. 
He is an old, old man and holds half a tuna fish sandwich with one hand, while the other is being employed in the completion of the Sudoku puzzle. The three of us stomp across the linoleum flooring of the office to stand directly in front of the wooden desk, behind which the manager sits hunched over his puzzle. He doesn't look up as we approach him. Finally, I clear my throat and say, <coughs> Sir, the, there's something in your pool. The pool is closed for the season, he says, keeping his eyes on his Sudoku. We know, says the bald-headed man, but there is something in there, something you should probably check out or something. We need you to unlock the gate for us. The motel manager growls, sets his tuna sandwich on top of his Sudoku booklet, and brings his head up to look at us. His neck muscles strain, and his head quivers and jerks as he brings his chin up from its hunched position. It's like his neck muscles are being manipulated by some faulty hydraulic system, and as a result his head moves with sharp little tremors. Once his head is brought up, he stares at us with his roomy, bloodshot eyes. Some pieces of tuna fish are caught in the thick, gray scruff around his mouth. What's in the pool, fellas? He asks his beady eyes bouncing from me to the bald-headed man to the long-haired man. I, I don't have time for any, any funny business or nothing like that. The pool is closed right now. His weathered face quivers like a tightly wound bobblehead. We're not, we're not sure what's in there, I say, but we know, we think, we know it's, it's not good. How do you know it ain't good if you don't know what the hell it is? The motel manager asks, clapping some sandwich crumbs off his hands. We just know, the long-haired man says. All right. All right, all right. Let's not get all excited now. Let me grab my keys. I'll come out there with you. We all watch as the motel manager struggles to stand up out of his chair. It's agonizing to watch. The three of us on the other side of the desk are itching with anxiety. I can tell we all feel the same strange agitation. We need to find out what's in the pool, and fast. After a serious, labor-intensive struggle, the motel manager finally rises out of his chair and begins to move. Even in a standing position, the motel manager's body is bent at an acute angle, his torso running almost parallel to the ground. We all watch silently as the manager waddles into a little room behind the front desk. A light comes on in the room, and I hear the sound of keys rattling. He reappears a few moments later with a massive key ring in one hand and a mag light in the other. Now a bizarre quartet, the four of us walk out of the office and into the cool evening air. Us younger men are desperate to run back to the pool, to peer through those bars again. But for some reason, we all walk at the old motel manager's snail's pace. We aren't going to leave him behind. The manager flips through his keys as he toddles to the pool, ignorant of the cloud of anxiety that surrounds him. After what seems like 30 minutes of geriatrically slow walking, we finally arrive at the pool's front gate. Now, like I said, fellas, the motel manager says, his eyes still locked on the key ring, the pool ain't open. It's closed for the season, and, and it ain't clean or nothing like that, so don't get any crazy ideas. No one says anything in response. We can hardly speak, we're so nervous. We stand at the gate and wait for the manager to find the right key to unlock the padlock. The manager slowly slides the keys around his donut-sized keyring one by one, using an inefficient and tedious process of elimination to find the right key. Uh, nope, the motel manager says. It's not that one. 
Or that one? Or that one? Bro, the bald-headed man says. Can you hurry up, please? Hey now, the motel manager says. You watch your tone with me, you understand, son? Just hurry, the bald-headed man says. While those two are arguing, I look between the bars to the black shape in the water. It hasn't moved. I feel the hairs on the back of my neck stick up. I look out the corner of my eye to the long-haired man standing beside me. His dark eyes are fixed on the shape in the water as well. He's mesmerized. A cold chill crawls up my back. My body shivers. Here it is, the motel manager says, hoisting the key ring above his head triumphantly. Found it. Great, says the bald-headed man, rubbing his hands together as if to warm them. Let's go. The motel manager lowers the key to the little padlock, and his shaky hand makes the keys on the ring sing a brassy little song. It's very quiet. None of us are speaking. There is the sound of our heavy, excited breathing and the clinking of the keys. The motel manager struggles to put the key in the padlock. The key slips a few times, scraping the edges of the metal lock. We're all standing in painful anticipation behind him, breathing down his neck, watching him fumble with the lock and key. Do you need help? I ask. No, damn it, he says. I'm not a child. Seconds later, there is the sound of a small click, and the padlock releases itself. The motel manager slides it out of the latch and drops the lock in one of his deep pockets in his khakis. Then he taps on the gate. The gate swings open slowly, making a long, sonorous moan as it does so. This sound, the sound of the rusty hinges moaning and shrieking in pain, echoes across the motel grounds, bouncing around the face of the motel and across the concrete sidewalk and in between cars. The motel manager moves through the gate and into the pool deck. The three of us wait outside the fence for a moment and then file through the gate behind him one by one. First the bald-headed man, then myself, and then the long-haired man. We approach the pool in a slow, deliberate fashion, like a group of soldiers sneaking towards the enemy. We are quiet. When we come to the edge of the pool, we fan out along its rim and stand shoulder to shoulder. It's dark now, almost impossible to see anything. The pool looks like one uniform shape of flat blackness. Okay, says the motel manager, fiddling with his maglite. I don't see nothing. Let's get some light here. The manager rolls the long maglite around in his hands, searching for the power button in the dark. I hear the sound of a rubbery snap, and then the maglite comes on. The light is angled up at the sky and glances against the roof of the motel. The manager is searching for a solid grip on the flashlight. Once he finds a good enough grip, he brings the light down to the pool dramatically, slowly, like a spotlight in an opera house. The light hits the murky green water and makes it glow all yellowish and sickly. It looks like some witch's brew or science fiction potion. The water is frothy and filled with stringy, pulpy matter. It is slimy and thick, and the light only penetrates the first few inches of the pool water. I... I still don't see nothing says the motel manager. Over here, the bald-headed man says, pointing to the center of the pool. Shine the light right here, right here. Okay, okay, says the motel manager, swinging the light around to the center of the pool. Oh, oh God, no, no, 
I, I don't understand, says the motel manager. How, how could this happen? Christ almighty, says the bald-headed man. I didn't want to believe it. I put my hands against my mouth and step back from the pool. I have the urge to vomit, but I hold it back. I cough and gasp against the sweaty palms of my hands. I want to take my eyes off the dead body, but I am unable to. They're locked on him. Trapped. The body is face down and semi-floating in the water. He wears a black suit, and his hair, which is long and auburn, waves around in the water like seaweed in a calm current. Only the top of his back floats above the surface. Everything else, his legs, arms, and head, dangle lazily in the water beneath him. It's almost as if he's laying prostrate on a bench while all of his appendages dangle over the edges. He bobs every now and again, his body lifting slightly out of the water and then dipping down in again. His body is surrounded and enveloped by filthy organic materials that have collected against him like algae around a derelict boat. Clumps of algae and long stringy bits of other aquatic residue have creeped up on his back and collected in thick, bubbly globs between his legs. He's been here a while. A very long time. How'd he, how'd he get in here? The motel manager asks in a somewhat conversational tone. We should get him out, I say, and we should call 911 now. Right, says the manager. I'll go call an ambulance. You boys figure out how to pull him out of there. The manager waddles away out of the pool deck. As he makes his way through the fence gate, I hear him whisper, How, how could this happen? The three of us stand at the edge of the pool, unsure what to do next. The body is oriented such that in order to retrieve him, one of us will have to get into the water. Unless some kind of tool can be implemented in his retrieval, none of us will be able to reach him. Is, is there one of those net things? The bald-headed man asks. What? What do you mean? I ask. Like, like one of those nets they use to clean pools. They, they use long metal poles. You see them at pools all the time. We could, we could use one to push him to the edge of the pool. Jesus, the long-haired man says, shaking his head. I'm not getting in there, the bald-headed man says to his friend. Are you? The long-haired man is silent. Okay, I say. Let's look for one. The three of us spread out on the pool deck and move to the fence line, searching for any kind of pool-cleaning tools. A brief but thorough search reveals that there is nothing in the way of nets with long poles attached. No one has worried about the sanitation of this pool for months or longer. Anything used for the purpose of cleaning is either locked away or has been discarded. We regroup at the edge of the pool, all of our eyes locked on the floating corpse. I hear the bald-headed man's breathing. It's loud and labored. I don't think we can reach him, says the bald-headed man. We'll, we'll have to wait for the paramedics to get here. No, I say. I'll get in there. You shouldn't, says the long-haired man. The water, it looks, it looks toxic or something, dude. You shouldn't get in there. I'm not going to stand here and look at his body for 20 minutes, waiting for the medics to show up. I'm getting in there. I have the attention of the other men. They are no longer looking at the body. They are looking at me. I unbuckle my pants and let them crumple to the concrete. I slip off my loafers and place them neatly near the pool's edge. I loosen my tie, unbutton my shirt, which is a beautiful East St. Laurent with gold cufflinks, 
and throw them on the ground. I am now only in my underwear, and the Californian night feels cold for the first time. I look down at the slimy water and realize that I'm about to become much colder. I move closer to the water. My toes grip the edge of the concrete. They dangle over the precipice. Goosebumps rise on my arms and legs. I shiver again. There is something within me that warns me, that says I might suffer the same fate as this dead man if I dare jump in the water. The voice tells me to wait, to stay out, but I ignore it. With a simple thrust of my toes, I push myself off the edge and drop into the murky water. It is cold, and filth clings to my skin, making my arms and legs feel slimy and lubricated, like an eel or squid. I gasp for air and cough as some of the poisonous water is splashed into my mouth. I wipe my face and move to the floating body with a kind of schoolboy doggy paddle. I am not a strong swimmer. My body starts to shiver violently as I reach the corpse. I can hear my teeth chattering. The men outside the pool are saying something, calling to me, giving me directions. But I don't listen. Their voices sound distant, far away, muffled. I grab the corpse by his left shoulder. My hand slips as I try to pull him and crashes into the water, splashing more contaminated liquid into my face and mouth. I cough and try again. This time, I dig my fingers into the fabric of his suit and pull. His body begins to move, to drift in the direction I pull him. Struggling to keep my head above water, I frog kick as I pull the body towards the pool's edge. Algae and other plant life part before us as we cut through the water. I notice a bald spot on the dead man's head. There are freckles on his scalp. This frightens me. I realize that this corpse is a real man, or was a real man, with a life and a family and friends and a bald spot with freckles. I bring the body to the edge of the pool, and the hands of the bald-headed man and the long-haired man reach down past me and take hold of the corpse's body. They pull on the body, heaving in unison on the waterlogged corpse. The upper half of his body breaks from the water and his wet hair sticks to his face. Then, with another exasperated pull, the two men rip his legs from the water and slide the rest of his body onto the concrete. When they lay him down, his body makes a wet and saturated sound like a soaked towel being tossed on the floor. Christ, says the bald-headed man. Never in a million years have I... He trails off. I remain in the pool for a moment. My entire body is shaking now. I look at the algae, at the water the man died in, or was dead in, and then pull myself out of the water. The two men have flipped the body onto his back now, his pale and bloated face looking up into the night sky. They stand over him with their hands clasped behind their backs and their heads lowered. They look like funeral goers standing over a grave. I sit naked on the concrete, my body soaked and dripping just like this corpse. I stare into the dead man's face. He looks somewhat like me. He's dressed like me, too. He wears cufflinks and pinstripes. The two men standing over him recognize the resemblance as well. The bald-headed man looks to me, and then to the corpse, and then back to me. He shakes his head. It might just be because it's dark, he says. But damn, this guy looks just like you. 
If his face wasn't all swollen, I, I bet you could be twins. Check for a wallet, I say. We should try to identify him. The long-haired man bends over the corpse and sifts through his wet clothes, plunging his hands into his pants pockets and searching the lining of his suit jacket. I can't find anything, the long-haired man says. All his pockets are empty. I nod and continue to shiver. Yo, do you need a towel or something? The bald-headed man asks. I shake my head. No, I'm fine. I'm fine. The bald-headed man nods and returns his gaze to the corpse on the ground in front of him. A few moments later, the motel manager returns to the pool out of breath and wide-eyed. His gait has become considerably faster. The manager informs us through his weak and unsupported voice that the police and paramedics will be arriving any second. We acknowledge this information with silent nods. The manager is satisfied for a moment, lets out a heavy sigh, and then notices the body on the concrete and gasps. The manager brings his bent and twisted arthritic hands to his face and shakes his head. How could this happen? How, how could this happen? No one says anything. No one knows the answer to his question. No one wants to know the answer to his question. I bring my knees up to my bare chest and wrap them with my arms. The manager looks at me and frowns. Damn, he says. You got in there, huh? You need a towel or something? I shake my head. No, no, I'm fine. I'm fine. The manager shrugs. A nighttime breeze picks up and runs across the pool deck. My muscles tense and the corpse's suit jacket whips and flaps against his bloated torso. A smell, a rancid, rotten smell rises up in the air. It's the smell of death. We all cover our noses and the manager steps back from the body. This is how we wait for the paramedics to arrive. Our hands over our noses and our eyes locked on the corpse of some nameless man. His face is gray and his eyes look cartoonish or fake. His mouth is open wide like a toddler searching for a bite of food. I trace the outline of his body with my eyes, coming to his feet, where I notice he is wearing my same Armani loafers. When I notice this, I have to look away. A couple minutes later, the entire complex is filled with wonderful, flashing lights, red and white and blue all over. The colors dance across the face of the motel and sparkle against the green water of the swimming pool. Tenants come out of their rooms and lean over railings to see what all of the lights and commotion are about. They're looking for a show, and they won't be disappointed when they see the dead body. The motel manager meets two young paramedics at the gate to the swimming pool. They wear blue latex gloves and push a gurney between them. Bringing up the rear is a police officer in a dark uniform with a bulletproof vest. I cannot hear what the manager is telling these first responders, but his voice is fast and raspy and he uses large hand gestures, pointing to us and the dead body every so often. The paramedics nod repeatedly while they listen to the old man. They look calm, even relaxed. Once the motel manager has finished speaking, the paramedics and the police officer squeeze past him and through the metal gate. Their eyes are focused on the corpse. While one of the young paramedics moves the dead body into a thick, black body bag, the other drapes a foil emergency blanket over my shoulders. The police officer begins to ask us questions, but I can't hear him. I can't hear anything for a moment. Everyone and everything sounds distant and far away, like I'm again submerged beneath the water. 
The police officer makes his way to me and crouches down to my level. He looks me over and asks me in a routine kind of way if I'm okay, if I am hurt. I tell him I'm fine, but the officer can see the fear in my face, the fear and the exhaustion. If you thought you were having a bad day, the police officer says, just think about the day he must have had. The police officer points behind me, and I turn to see the corpse being lifted off the ground and put onto the gurney. His Armani loafers stick up at the bottom of the body bag, forming two little mountain peaks in the synthetic material. I slowly lower my head. I've stopped shivering. Thank you for listening. That was episode 15 of From My Mom's Basement. This episode was written, narrated, edited, produced by myself, with the music being by Kevin McLeod. Thank you again for listening. Thank you.